Hey, welcome to the Beginner Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Raymond Hadfield, and today we are hearing from 10 different photographers who share 10 of the biggest lessons of the year. This is the best of the year episode. But first, this episode is brought to you by CloudSpot. Now, if you are looking to start earning money with your camera, especially, you know, here in the new year, CloudSpot is the easiest way to get started. CloudSpot Studio allows you to send invoices, get contracts signed, collect payments, deliver images, and sell your work. CloudSpot does all that, even with their free account. You got no reason not to sign up. And if you're still using Google Drive, you're doing it wrong. It costs nothing to get started earning money today, and you can you know upgrade only when you are ready. So you can sign up for a free CloudSpot account by heading over to deliverphotos.com right now. So as I mentioned, today we're hearing from 10 photographers who share the biggest lessons of the year. So how did, how did I determine that? Well, uh, it was pretty simple. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the memory to, uh, you know, uh, recall every episode and interview that I've done this year and, you know, pinpoint those exact lessons. So I looked to you. I just grabbed the data on my end uh, as far as number of downloads and um, engagement with each episode and found those episodes that you know, resonated the most with you and compiled them into this biggest takeaway uh, of the year episode for you to enjoy. And I think what I what I really love about these these yearly rewind episodes, which uh, I try to do every December, is just how quickly they are able to put everything into perspective. You know, sometimes I feel that photography can seem like like you're at the foot of this just impossibly tall mountain and you have no idea where to even begin to conquer it. But when you listen back to these timeless lessons, you know, simple lessons that aren't about strategies um, that are hot today, but these are lessons that are going to last a lifetime. It really puts everything into perspective. So today we're touching upon many major elements of photography. And sure, we are going to be talking about light. We're going to be talking about shooting landscapes. But we're also talking about self-doubt and the ethics of taking a photograph as well. So don't forget to grab your free downloadable photography action plan for this episode in the free and private beginner photography podcast community, which you can join by uh, heading over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash group right now. Again, that's beginnerphotopod.com forward slash group. So why don't we go ahead and dive on in? Now, first up, this time of year has many of us thinking about attempting a 365 or a, a daily photo project. Uh, so we're going to kick this thing off with Anna Puhlman, who shares tips on how she has successfully done a 365 now for several years. 365s are very, uh, it's something that a lot of people want to do. We, as the Beginner Photography Podcast, we have a daily photo challenge as well. And it's funny because like January, February, really strong, March, not so much April. And then by the end of the year, you know, everybody has, uh, has forgotten about it. So what tips do you have to, to stay motivated and continue doing a 365? My top tip is 
don't start January 1st <laughs> because January is so full of pressure. We always, we all want to live healthier. We want to exercise daily. We um, want to do yoga. We want to learn another craft. We read a hundred um, books. Yeah, exactly. Read a hundred books in the year. And then if we add on another one, like it's, I don't know if you or your listeners have read Atomic Habits, but basically that's what James Clear talks about. Don't do, if you want to create new habits, don't start with all of them at once. Do one at a time and add one. So if you add everything you want to do on January 1st, most of them are going to fail. So I started mine in November because that's when my birthday is. At one point I was just, I'm just going to do this now. I wanted to do this for absolutely ages. Again, back to Flickr times is when I saw the first people do that like 2008 or 2010 I think the first time I've heard of it it's like oh that's really cool but I could never do that um and then like thinking about it long and long and long enough I at some point just decided I'm just going to do this and I'm going to start on my birthday uh, because also it means I started when the weather and the light was the worst like at least in in the like northern hemisphere mm -hmm. um so we have very little light we have worse weather i mean i don't know if you can hear it but it's checking down again <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um so i kind of needed to be okay with shooting in the dark and um, having just a short window of time where i could take photos with lots of daylight and that helped me push through because then if i pushed through that if i started with this but i had the longest time then i went into the easy time in summer where just we're out more there's more happening we tend to do more with friends it's just life just seems to happen starting in spring yes. and it's it just gets easier so yeah my second tip would be um don't be afraid of dark and dark dark days and grubby wet weather and also make your own rules so there's um some people like to have a theme per day per week per month I personally don't like that because then I feel very restricted and I'm like I need to shoot within that theme but I don't actually know what to shoot within that now so I'm just not going to shoot okay. so for me it's I just shoot whatever happens and sometimes I forget so I have to get creative in the evening when the light is out um there's a photo of me um in the bathroom with the mirror and the mirror has like a a fraction at the bottom so you can see my eyes twice and that happened because I was like oh it's like 10 p.m I still haven't taken a photo what can I do today and so not every photo that I take within my 365 is documentary but it's always a reflection of who I am and I really love so every, after every year I um I make a book and funnily enough because my my birthday is end of November um, end of December during Black Friday, Blurb has 50% of books. Yes. So I save a ton of money on making my albums because they're thick. I put one page, one photo on one page. So this is a 365 page book. Wow. It's a really, it's a really chunky book. And I absolutely love looking through it and just seeing like what I did throughout the year because we forget as well. Like it's really, it's a nice reminder of who you, who you were at a certain point and is having a photo or a second of video can spark so many memories of what you did during a day or during a week or during a period of your time and just all the memories come back and that's again why I love photography for as a as a profession because I can give that to my clients to kind of help them remember who they used to be when the kids were small how their life looked like what their house looked like after before they moved for the next three times um and just capturing these these mundane things, especially with a 365, we also have to be okay with taking really bad photos. 
And they might not be bad in the grand scheme of things when you look through them all because they, they add to the story. But on the day, I'm like, that was really not great for you. I really don't even want to share it. And I guess that's another, I'm sorry, I think you asked for me, I've got loads of tips on that. But <laughs> yeah, I think another I one is to, to, to not make the project about sharing, but to make the project about yourself. And um, any personal project can just be for yourself. You don't have to share, you don't have to ask for validation or appreciation from anybody else but yourself. And that takes the pressure off, I would say, personally. If you want to hear the full episode with Anya, just check out episode 342. Next, light is one of, if not the most important elements in a uh, photo. And Damien Lovegrove knows his way around light. So in this clip, he shares how you can start to see light and use light more photographically. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to uh, going to a wedding, like we talked about, you know, you have your, your base exposure that you try to go with. But one of the things that you're very well known for is your use of light your use of flash yeah. and just like really making compelling images with light and that's one of the things that new photographers struggle with the most you know i mean when, when you say you know you have to learn to see the light their first response is i see it everywhere it's it's light what, what do you mean you know how do we kind of develop that eye to to see light in a more critical sense okay i think the first thing is um it's not necessarily being able to see the light, although that is a phrase that everyone uses. It's being able to take control of light. So in this situation here, for instance, I've got a light, a key light, which is lighting me. I've got a backlight giving me a bit of rim light. Um, and there's some background and I've set the, the background lighting is at fixed level. So I set my exposure, which is the MacBook Pro camera on, on that. And I adjust my other lights to suit. Um, it's quite straightforward. And when shooting weddings, I used to take a, an Arri 300 uh, watt Fresnel lens light and it take it on, put it on a stand. And we're at, at the reception venue, you nip up to the bride's bride and groom's bedroom, um, set that up there. And then when that was all rigged and set, we used to come down and get the bride and groom from the, from their reception and take them up and do some lovely pictures, very Hollywood-esque style pictures. Um, and once you've got a light, you can pan it around and control it and do what you want with it. Um, it's fantastic. But I mean, we weren't working with soft light. We were working with hard light. So, um, and that was part of the process. But what you can do at home without even having any lights is to go into a room, close the curtains, close the shutters if you've got shutters, close the door and start with a dark, a black dark space. Then open the one curtain just a bit and look at the way that the light comes through that slash of light, the way it dances across the bed or it, where it hits the room. Because the whole room stays subdued, but there's a pool of light that comes in. Just by closing the curtains and opening them a little bit, you create shape with the light. And then you place, you sit a bride there in, on the edge of the bed with that light coming in from the curtains. Looks fantastic. Um, whereas if all the curtains are wide open, just looks like a bride sitting on a bed in a bedroom. <laughs> so it's taking control of light. Sometimes it's about what you remove rather than what you put in. Oh, wow. Sometimes it's what you remove rather than put in. So when it comes to um, 
so when it comes to light, right, obviously, so it's not, it's not just about blasting a scene full of light. That is yeah. not going to get you anywhere. That's um, illuminating. That, right. That is illuminating. And that's yeah. what you do if you put your flash on camera with a stove or whatever, and it, it just, the flash zooms out, it illuminates the scene. Now with a flash on camera, of course, it's quite a hard light and it can look very fashionable, especially if you've got people coming out of a nightclub or in a, in, all dressed up for an evening. You, you know, it's, it, they are publishable works of art often um and you often see people's work you know famous photographers uh testino people like that and you look at the picture and you think well that's just flash on camera so that's what it needs to be it doesn't have to be it just has to be considered if that makes sense um but you can also you know as soon as you start putting soft boxes and big umbrellas and things then you start to lose an element of control hmm. and then it's hard to fight and bring that back um because of course Window is not the light source. You can't replace a window with a softbox and, and expect it to um, be a, a light source, you know, because it's not. The window is just a hole that the light comes through and the light comes from the sky beyond. And so another way of working is to put, I, when I'm shooting uh, interiors and things, I put a light outside on the patio or in the garden, in the yard, um, set it up and pump it through the window and make it make my sunlight where I want it to be. So I can be on the north side of a building in the Northern hemisphere um, and uh, make it a sunny room. Um, even if it's on the first floor or, or you know, the, the, the second floor, or what have you, just use a tool stand for that process. But, um, so some, I quite often I'm putting light in from outside, um, rather than lighting from within the space, if that makes sense. So much in that one. Check out the full interview with Damien, uh, by listening in and searching for episode 342. Now, one of the main reasons why many of us got into photography uh, was that we became parents, you know, but kids can be a challenging subject to shoot, especially when you are first getting started. You know, not only do you have to learn the camera, but you have to, uh, you know, capture these fast moving subjects. So uh, right here, Melissa Miller is going to share just how to capture great and compelling photos of kids. When it comes time to 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 playing with children, t tell me what that looks like. Because you know, when I think of playing with my children, um, I don't think that I guess I don't think of it in a in a photographic sense. Um, I've heard of things mm -hmm. like prompts before, but can you kind of go a little bit deeper into how it is that you interact specifically with children during your sessions to to get these genuine emotions and reactions? Yeah, so I would say that I use prompts to create opportunities for play to create genuine expressions and just to capture the magic of childhood. So for instance, um, I might have them like, if, if, if I notice that a child is high energy and rambunctious and wants to be moving rather than have them stand still for a portrait, I might do red light, green light and on red light, they freeze. And that's when I, capture that portrait of them standing, looking at me, usually laughing and smiling because they just had to freeze while they were in, in mid run. Um, so that's one example. Or um, I mentioned Simon says earlier, that's something else when I need them to do something specific, when I have like a, a specific idea in mind and they're not a child that is going to want to follow directions, then I just incorporate it into a game of Simon says, and I include silly things in there too, like jump up and down five times. Simon says, jump up and down five times. And then Simon says, freeze. Um, so I build the play around 
the images that I'm wanting to capture. Okay, I see. Uh, is there a, a limit to this? Because it seems like you could just do that for the entire session and get everything that you need. But do kids... I do that for the entire session. Oh, really? So No, so... kids don't have a limit for play. <laughs> kids, kids are wired to play. Yeah, the whole session is play. Of course, of course. Uh, so, um, But I'm sure that you're not <laughs> just saying Simon Says the entire time. I'm sure that there's more to it than that. Maybe you, you give them you know, additional prompts, as, as you said, uh, like with the train and whatnot. Um, uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, Simon Says is not the whole time. That's, yeah, kids do get sick of playing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so then that's that's to get the specific photo that you're looking for. So maybe Simon Says, pick a flower. Simon Says, smell the flower. Simon Says, something like that. Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you have something interesting like a flower, you don't need Simon Says. So I, I save Simon Says for when there's like a specific pose that I want, which most of the session isn't actual poses. It's, um, yeah, sending them on a bug hunt or ah. searching for a flower or picking a flower to surprise your mom with and then go put it behind her ear. Mm. Uh, um, anything that allows kids to be sneaky, they love that. So I'll have, you know, I'll put mom and dad, um, I'll let them, I'll tell them they get to have a romantic moment so they can go over there and, and give a little smooch or a hug or a snuggle. And then I'll have the kids near me and I'll whisper, okay, um, when I say up and give mom's hug, or you're going to run up and run around mom and dad or, or whatever it is, if the kids feel that they are doing something sneaky, um, they love that. So that's one example of how I incorporate play. Having done a few family sessions myself, I know that parents can... Um... Sometimes they have an expectation of how their children should act or how they should look during a session. Do you mm -hmm. find that they are trying to give input on how the child should act during this time? Or do you in do anything to combat that? You know, I, I hear about that happening a lot to photographers. I That hasn't been my personal experience, but I also heavily market my expertise with children and with play. And so a lot of times when people hire me, they're hiring me for that specifically, and they're coming with a lot of trust. So I think I avoid, and, and I am at a high enough price point that I avoid, I just avoid a lot of the problems that you might otherwise see. And, but I, I mean, really, I feel like I've been so blessed to work with families who, for the most part, let me do my thing. And, and I also do a lot of prep beforehand. You know, I send out um, there's a lot of communication. I'm asking questions about their children and their interests and letting them know that all they need to do is just to relax and come to the session and have fun. And I, I make sure I stress that they don't need to worry about their children's behavior, mm. that I I have children myself. I've taught elementary school. I know that children, I don't expect the children to just stand still and smile at the camera the whole time. So they come in knowing that play will be incorporated. Go ahead and search for episode 380 to listen to Melissa's full interview and hear more tips that she's got about working with kids or photographing your kids. It's like a working relationship, being a parent. Yeah. Now, one of the main um, themes of the year has been AI. You know, it's been a major conversation um, for photographers. So here, Shane Bulkowicz and I kind of talk about how AI imaging is currently affecting us photographers but also how we can start to navigate the changing landscape of digital imagery and, you know, what we can do to protect ourselves. Many professionals are worried that AI is going to take their job. And in fact, I've mm -hmm. talked about this on the podcast. I think next year, the first product will probably come to market where 
a bride and a groom can just upload selfies that they took on their wedding day into some sort of AI type tool. And now they have world-class images of their wedding without a wedding photographer. I hate to tell this to you, Raymond, that's already been done. Okay, well then there we go. It's already been done. So you can upload a photograph of you and your bride Uh and you can place you and your bride in any tuxedo, in Uh any wedding dress, in any location in the world. So I can get, I can, I can now, I got married here in Bismarck, North Dakota, but now I can get married in Bali. Right, yes. I didn't have to get on a plane. (laughs) <laughs> and uh what are those a, photographs uh, going to mean to my children what are those what are the, what is that going to mean you know what's again I, I keep coming back to this what's the purpose yeah uh, what is the point i get it i get it i just think that there's a lot of people who don't value photography or 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 i hate to say authentic or or true images uh because as we know that there's some ambiguity in that um, let's go positive again Let's just okay. say that this AI is going to drive the importance of what we, you and I do. It's going to reality-based, authentic photography. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That at some point, that is it's this this new shiny object is just going to be tossed aside for what it is. Yeah, and people are going to want to come back. I let's just let's say I, I think that's a positive. I think that that's, that's some we can draw that line that people are going to have more appreciation. For what did I do here in my studio, getting that moon and, and getting the prop and getting the lighting. And, you know, it, it took me it took, it took us three months. Yeah. It took us three months to get that shot. And guess how many exposures I made? I spent three months on the prop and getting everything ready and the model and everything together. Two exposures. Two exposures. Yeah. That's what it took. I took That's... two exposures. Uh, so do you think that you only took two exposures because you knew in your head exactly what that image wanted? When to I got it, mm-hmm. I got it. You got it. Yeah. I don't, I don't need the glut. Mm-hmm. I don't <laughs> need to take, I don't need, I don't need more. More is yeah. not better. And if we, you know, this is a beginning, a beginning photographer's podcast, right? If I can just a little bit of, I, I don't, I'm not the, I'm not the greatest uh, expert in this field. Right. But if I can give a little bit to, to the listeners today, less is more. You don't have to take 4,000 photographs at a wedding, okay? Mm-hmm. When I went and took the, the photograph of Greta Thunberg down at Standing Rock, I only had six clean glass plates in my box. That means I, you know, I'm telling you, Raymond, you get to go take Evander Holyfield's photograph like I took. Yeah. Okay, bring your camera. Mm-hmm. He's coming in at two o'clock. Guess mm-hmm. what? Your camera's full and you only have room for six exposures. Yeah. And you have them for one hour. It sounds insanity. But when you work under those constraints and you think about less is more, someone argued today that just take you could just take as many. It was even on your own. I think you posted it a, a week or so ago. You said sometimes take more photographs so you never know what's you know you may you never know what you, the the gem that you may find or you may sure. find. Yeah. Do you remember doing that? There was something like if you take more, I would like to argue let's take less. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if you take less, you're going to spend more time on them. If you spend more time on them, you're going to get more of what you were looking for instead of just um, just filling the camera up and 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 sifting through um, all these photographs to find that little gem. Because if you if you if you just you know turn that shutter open, it just captures a hundred photographs. You, you're you're back to this. Was it your hand stroke? Was it your brush stroke that got mm-hmm. that one photograph? Was or was it just chance? It shouldn't be chance. It happens every once in a while. We talked mm-hmm. about it. There's happy accidents in my studio all the time. But 
you know, if, if it, there's the intent, if you go back to the intent, I think we'll all do better in, in photography. That interview with Shane Balkowicz was from episode 388, if you want to go back and listen. Now, the issue of ethics in photography has always been something that I've considered. Um, you know, as, as we all know that a camera doesn't just give us carte blanche to shoot whatever we want of whomever we want. So here, Savannah Dodd helps us with questions to ask to determine whether a photo that we take is helpful or unintentionally harmful. As new photographers, uh, it can be difficult to know. First of all, you just you just want to go out and shoot things, right? You just want to tell cool stories. Um, and I remember uh, back in the day when Flickr was like a really uh, a much bigger and important platform than it is uh, today. I had seen many photo essays or series of photos of homeless people. And I remember thinking to myself, and it comes to find out like it was an assignment from like uh, many uh, colleges, you know, to go out and try to not necessarily find somebody who's homeless, but find somebody who has, you know, an incredible life experience and, and showcase their mm -hmm. story. And people just naturally gravitated towards, um, you know, homelessness. Uh, mm -hmm. This may be really deep, but can you kind of talk about like, why do we naturally gravitate towards these certain things? And maybe totally. why we should question it before we, we go out there with a the camera? Totally. I actually have an example that I think will speak to this. So um, part of the reason why I brought up the, the example of sub-Saharan Africa is because um, I was photographing for a charity in uh, rural southern Uganda, and I encountered a, an interesting situation that was a challenge to navigate, you know, the ethics of it, because I was walking around a very small village with a community health worker who uh, is, is Ugandan herself. And, you know, I had my camera because I was photographing for, you know, the charities, communications and things. And we come up to house and there were two children who were seated playing on the ground they weren't wearing shoes, you know, they had dust on their clothes and they were sitting under banana leaves. And uh, the health worker says to me, oh, there's your photograph. You have to take that photograph. You know, that's that's what you need. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is not the type of photograph I want to take. But I also didn't want I wanted to value her role as expert of the community. You know, I didn't want to make her feel bad by saying no, that's not the photograph I want or by not taking the photograph I want, you know, she was trying to help me. Sure. Um, so I took the photograph. I got consent from the parents, but I've never showed it because we do expect that, you know, we expect that to be the winning photograph. That is the good photograph that we've seen. Sure. We've sure. seen all these photographs, you know, dramatic photographs, maybe of people experiencing homelessness, dramatic photographs, you know, and, and we think, when I, you know, if I'm going to take a, a good photograph, well, that's the photograph I have to take because that's what a good photograph is, mm. you know, mm -hmm. because that's what we've seen when. So I think that a lot of times we're replicating these expectations of, of what we think good photography is, what we think meaningful photography is. And a lot of times those expectations are very wrapped up with stereotyping and assumptions and tropes. And can be very othering as well. You know, it's something other. It's something different. It's it's different from my lived experience. Therefore, it's more visual or more interesting. And I think another element to, you know, focusing on, on the experience of homelessness is that people in vulnerable positions like that are much 
easier to access, right? Vulnerability and, and people without power are easier to access than people with power mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know? So there's also that element of the hyper-visual or what we think of as being hyper-visual experience of, of homelessness that I think is often gravitated to. But I think that when we're, when we're, when we're doing that, when we're looking for, you know, an assignment and we're, we're looking for a, well, what should I focus on? You know, what's my, what's my story? I think a really, really good question that you could ask yourself is what do we learn from this photograph? Do we learn anything new? First of all, if the answer is no, that's a red flag because you might be replicating stereotypes or tropes or relying on people's expectations. If there are people in your photograph, what do you learn about the person in your photograph? Do you learn anything about them as an individual? Anything that goes beyond your expectations? If not, (laughs) um, again, that could be a red flag that you're using them as a prop, as a stand-in for someone of their type, that it could be any person experiencing homelessness and it would be the same photograph. You can learn more about photo ethics by tuning in to episode 358 with Savannah Dodd. Now, landscapes are one of the most popular genres of photography amongst you, the listeners of the Beginner Photography Podcast. And Jim Nix is a well-known landscape photographer. And in this clip, he tackles the question of how do we make a scene of something that a million other photographers have shot? Interesting. Yeah, so if you knew that you were going to London... Uh, and you knew that you were going to be taking photos. Did you think in your head beforehand of the photos that you wanted to take? Yeah. Yeah. So um, planning for me is is always a, a big part of that. And so for that trip, I uh, I did a number of things. I'd already been a few times. And so I knew places I want to see. And I'm, I'm a fan. I personally recommend shooting the same place multiple times simply because you can't control the conditions or anything like that. And it may look different. Uh, you know, things may slightly change even in cities, right? Um, over time. And so I like to go back. And so even though I'd shot Big Ben several times before, I was like, you know, hey, I'm going to get another shot of uh, Westminster Bridge with Big Ben at sunset with the River Thames. They're kind of running through the front of it or whatever. It's the same spot that everybody shoots. And that's okay. Um, I don't necessarily always go to a place and say, I am going to get the defining shot of this location. Because, I mean, it's hard, yeah. uh, to be honest. I mean, I feel like those kind of shots are very few and far between. And if that's your goal, I feel like it's a really lofty goal. And I feel like it, it would be hard to hit quite often, which could lead to disappointment. And I'd rather, going back to the joy thing, I'm like, I just want to go take photos. Mm-hmm. And I don't really care if 4 billion people stood in the same spot and took the same photo. That's okay. I'm still going to put my stamp on it in terms of maybe how I capture it and also how I edit it. And honestly, I just want to stand in that location because I love it and it's beautiful and I love taking photos of this stuff, even though I've already got a couple dozen or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I do a lot of planning in advance. Uh, if I know the spots, then I know the spots. But also you might get on a, a website like PhotoHound. If you're familiar with PhotoHound, it's it's uh, Matthew Brown runs it. Um it's, it's a great website for doing photography research. Uh, I used to make lists on my blog, including one for London, about the best, uh, what I call top photo spots. Um, and so, you know, just helping other people, hey, here's great spots I found in London or here in Austin where I live or whatever city, right? So um, bottom line, like, a, you know, Google is your friend. Uh, so 
look it up. And then on top of that, maybe check the Flickers and the Instagrams of the world, you know, do some searching there and just start to see what other people have done. And there's countless lists on countless websites that people have said, you know, here's the best Instagram spots in London or the best Instagram spots in whatever, because it's a, I'm sure a popular uh, phrase mm-hmm. for getting traffic to a, to a web page, which is cool. Um, and so I, I do a lot of research. Um, and then you can look at things like photo pills, uh, right? Different apps that show you where the sun's going to be at time of day. So there's different considerations around that. So a fair amount of planning. Um, and so I, I make a list. And usually what I do is I just put a list on my iPhone and I just have a list. And for for cities, it's it's not particularly hard to find. Um, you know, obviously you can use Google Maps and that sort of thing. And so I just look on my phone, look on my map and I'm like, okay. I mean, some are obvious, like where's Big Ben, where's the London Eye, whatever, you know, those are obvious. But, you know, this little cafe or this alley, that's a little squishier in terms of where it is. And sometimes people don't say exactly. They're like, oh, it's not far from Tower Bridge. There's this cool thing. And so I recommend wandering. So my point was make a plan, but then don't just stick to your plan. Wander quite a bit. And in fact, uh, the best advice I, I try to give people when they're going to cities to shoot is to walk a lot, simply because if you're like, okay, I'm shooting Big Ben, and then I'm going to get on the uh, uh, on the tube, and I'm going to zip over to the London or Tower Bridge, and I'm going to shoot that, and then I'm going to get on the tube, and I'm going to go to you know Buckingham Palace or whatever it is. I feel like you miss a whole lot because if you wander, you know, you, I just think you miss a lot of shots, and so. <laughs> Everybody wants to get the big postcard shots, the big bends, the Tower Bridge at sunset, whatever, which is great. But I think it's uh, get the postcard shots and get them several times on a trip if you can, because conditions are going to differ. But also, if you walk and wander and allow yourself to get lost and not just look in the, the fastest public transport route between site A and site B, there's tons of interesting shots between site A and site B that you're only going to find if you wander a little bit and walk and you're not in a hurry. And frankly, you'll probably get better shots and also shots that a lot of other people don't have because they didn't walk uh, or wander. They just hopped on the tube, for example, and shot across London to the next spot. So I'm a huge fan of kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of purposely getting lost, I guess, is a way of putting it. Be sure to listen to the full interview with Jim. Uh, You can go ahead and search for episode 376. Next up, we hear from Liza Roberts, who is a, she's a fantasy photographer. And fantasy is in high production volume. She's got costumes, props, hair and makeup, the full thing, you know, to create these beautifully imaginative images that are still rooted in reality. But these images, they can't, easily be redone if you miss a shot or screw something up on set. So in this clip, Liza shares how she determines whether or not she was successful while shooting. If you come up with a shot list, you, you have this rough idea of what it is that you want. You go there, uh, you try to stick to it, but you're also opening, you're, you're open to uh, playing around. Mm-hmm. How do you know if, because time is like you said, very important. You got to be aware of these people and, and they're waiting on you. How, how do you know whether or not you did a good job before, you know, the session is over and you let them go home and, you, you know, you can't, you can't shoot anymore. So how, how do you know that you, that you did a good job at a shoot? Sure. 
the, okay, the, the like technical answer, I guess, for this is like, of course, like take time to like look, you know, even look at the back of the screen. I know I have some friends who have like monitors or you can like load them onto your phone and like kind of just quickly like go through and like, okay, good. I got the shot that I wanted. Um, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't Maybe either. I should. But no, I, um, no. I have seen people do that, though. I'm like, that's that's fine. But I, it's um, more fun to know, be surprised. It's more fun to be surprised. And if you feel truly like you got what you like and you're confident, not even if you're confident, even if you just let people know that you had a good time and you like feel satisfied, I guess, with the work that you did, like they're going to reflect that like you're the photographer, you're the one like leading the the shot. So own it. Like it's going to be okay. Your models are going to be happy that you're happy. Even if you didn't get it, just like move on to the next thing. You're going to be fine. <laughs> it's a bit of a feeling. It sounds like. It's a feeling. Yeah, for sure. I always found that part kind of difficult because I know um, it's very easy to feel like you killed it and then come home and you know, look at your photos and think, what did I do? And I always yeah. just to, you know, kind of get over that. I always have a, uh, at least a one week period before I will edit any photos. Do you feel the same? Or do you come back and you're like, Oh, I'm ready to go. Let's, let's edit. Yeah. I think, you know, of course, when you have that feeling immediately, it's, it's exciting to come on and load them onto the computer. But yeah, there have definitely been, I, every photographer has a time when they're like, this is, uh, you know, I'm, I disappointed myself and it's totally okay to give yourself time. I think it's totally okay to also just like load it on the computer. Um, when I do that and I load it on the computer and I do find that I didn't get what I wanted or it's not as good as I wanted it to be, it's okay to be really bummed about that. Like let yourself, give yourself time. Don't touch them. Come back to them in the week then. Like, cause yeah, that really sucks. Like, it happens to ev- just remember it happens to everyone. I guess the question then is like, what do I do with the work that I have? Yeah. Use it as an experience to teach yourself like, okay, maybe next time I get more shots, I get, try that kind of quantity over quality thing. Like if you can't do that, use it as a chance to edit in different ways or um, watch some tut- YouTube tutorials. Even if you've been doing photography for a zillion years and you think you're like, you're a master, like go back to YouTube, watch a basic tutorial again. Everyone can benefit from like a basic class. And then maybe you'll remember something or relearn something that will help you with this, this work that you're not super satisfied with. And remember, lastly, that you're your own worst critic. Like I'm sure the people that you're taking the photos of are going to be super excited to have them and to see them. <laughs> uh, this may be kind of a personal question, but can you tell me like w- one of the most difficult shoots you had uh, ever had and kind of what you had learned from it? Sure. Uh let me think about it for a second. Cause I, I can like, they all go recall perfectly, the, right? the fe- no, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I can recall that feeling. I'm just trying to think of like one that's like a good, like this one, this one didn't go the way I wanted to. It ended up being like good and people liked it. It wasn't like soul crushing, but I was doing a shoot with my friend, Rachel. And she, I, like I said, I don't usually shoot indoors. Um, I shoot, I love just natural light. So I'm not super well versed in like, playing around with photography lighting. So we were playing with these really fun, uh, like color changing, like lights and making them look like stage lights. We were doing a clown, like Pierrot shoot. And I was like, this is so fun. This looks awesome. Like, I can't wait to get back and edit these. And again, like we just talked about, I get on, I'm like, what am I going to do with these? Like, <laughs> like, I don't like, they look cool, I guess, but like, it's not my usual style. And like, 
it wasn't super exciting to edit for me. Um, but once I did, I, I decided to, it was a good uh, opportunity to just play because it's not what I usually do. So why not just use it as like a learning opportunity? So I played around with like the light colors, which was easy to do because they were so saturated to like the color, like split turning and color sliding sliders and whatever was really fun to play with. I just experimented with anything I could think of really. And just like, let's just slide everything around in Lightroom. <laughs> Wasn't like my favorite shoot like that we'd ever done together, but I think it worked out pretty well. That one was from episode 370. So if you want to hear the full interview with Liza, go ahead and check that one out. Now, this year it was huge for photographers looking to start a business and make some money with their camera. You know, when when shooting for money, there is so much to keep track of. Um, you know, in my early days, remembering I had to buy like separate binders and notebooks just so that I could have one place to keep track of, of, of names and dates and invoices and questionnaires. And then of course there's digital tools like, um, email and trying to stay organized in, in your online calendar. And there are tools, you know, that you can invest in to stay organized, but that can be a big investment that you may not be ready for. It was a, it was a leap for me. Um, but that's no longer the problem because in this clip, Gavin Wade, uh, the CEO of CloudSpot introduces CloudSpot Studio and you will hear me be, I mean, completely flabbergasted at how much CloudSpot is offering for photographers getting started to help you launch and grow a business. Just to clarify, CloudSpot Studio does, does questionnaires. Yeah. It does. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and contracts. Yes. And invoices. And invoices. You can set up payment schedules. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That was, I was going to ask about the, uh, the, the multiple payments and it, it, it sends that all those things out through a, uh, through an email. So does it do reminder emails as well? It does. Okay. And, uh, can you customize all of those things? You can customize everything and save them. So you can save contract templates, invoice templates, questionnaire templates, and you can, of course, modify them slightly, mm -hmm. um, but you don't have to redo that work. And the same thing for those transactional emails, like the reminder emails, uh, the thank you emails, all of that is customizable and saved as well as a template. Okay. So you don't have to change things like the client's name. Not at all. We have smart fields. So essentially, once you build those into the email template, it will inject the relative data and info for that particular client or shoot without you having to worry about it. Uh, okay. So, so literally you have a new client coming up and you're like, well, I got to send them a contract. The email's already written up and it'll use those smart fields to just automatically populate their name. You literally just press send and it'll, it'll take care of that. Yes, exactly. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so then, um, and then before we go on, uh, just to clarify, I know that CloudSpot has multiple, multiple plans with, uh, the, uh, the unlimited plan, the pro plan light, and then, uh, free as well, which, tier do you have to be on to start using CloudSpot Studio? I'm going back to what we knew we needed to do if we were going to build this thing is we wanted it to be accessible to anyone and everyone, no matter where they were at in their journey. So going back to the, oh my gosh, I now have to have and pay for these three different things. Where do I go? That's not what CloudSpot Studio is. We are making it available for free on any of our plans, it's included. So if you're on our free plan, I mean, of course there's some limitations, but nothing that would prevent you from doing exactly what we just described there with your first clients. Um, we're not throwing ourselves in front of their face. It is your brand. It's the hero, no matter what plan you're on. 
uh, because we want to grow with you. We're not trying to force you into something that your business or yourself is not ready for. But at the same time, we don't want you to feel like you have to sacrifice and choose between, look, do my clients get a great experience or do I have to pay for something that I can't afford right now? Or, you know, it's not that next step in my business. So we want to be right there with you every step. And then it's available on all the other plans. And that's as your storage needs grow, right? As the number of clients that you have and the number of photos that you take grows, that's when it makes sense to upgrade and go from there. So somebody gets asked to shoot their friends' family photos. And they're like, yeah, sure. So they go out and then they just shoot those photos. Now they have images that they're like, oh, uh, how do I deliver these to my clients? Should I use Google Drive or something else? They listen to the beginner photography podcast. They hear, oh, maybe I should try a cloud spot and grab a free account. But there's going to be, you know, now if I have to send out contracts and questionnaires in the future and collect payments, that's surely a different thing. But all that's included. And now if somebody else comes along and they want to book a session they can go through this whole process of booking them as a client, sending them the contract, sending them the questionnaire, getting that invoice, getting paid, and they can do all that for free. Absolutely. Oh and I'll walk, you through the, I'll walk you through every single piece of the client journey that CloudSpot handles for you under one single roof. So it is project management, client management, contracts, invoices, questionnaires, a booking feature, which we're working on now. Image delivery, so client galleries, high-res downloads, and print and product sales directly through the gallery. End-to-end, your entire client experience from booking to delivery and beyond in terms of revenue for you, in terms of sales, in terms of each single step, we've got you covered and it's free and upgrade when it, when it fits you best. Okay. So my next question was going to be how many clients should somebody have while still juggling the paper uh, information that they get from them and then the different calendars and then the spreadsheets before it makes sense to upgrade to some sort of plan that includes CloudSpot Studio so that they don't have to lose sleep at night wondering, was that this Saturday or next Saturday? Do I have to set my alarm? Did I charge my batteries? It was, what was the client's name? All of those things. But now... Uh, there's literally no objection that I can think of for why somebody wouldn't sign up for this just to get started, at least, and then and then start growing from there. Because that is, as you said, kind of all, all of the tools to, to get you into this and then let you grow into wherever you need to grow. You can learn more about the business side of photography and hear the full interview with Gavin by checking out episode 398. Now, I got a question for you. Have you ever thought to yourself... Who cares? Who who would care about this photo? Who cares about what I'm putting into the world? Um, what is this all for? I do. I, I ask myself those questions. And that self-doubt has honestly stopped me from starting many projects. But in this clip, Elena Dorfman, who is, I mean, you check out her body of work. She's the queen of creating a device. A diverse range of really interesting photography projects. And she shares how she also deals with self doubt and how she actually uses it to help her create better projects. But then I think about some other photographers whose work I love and enjoy. And I look at these photos and I think, if I would have thought of that idea, I would have thought, who cares? Like, nobody, nobody cares about this. Um, one in particular is the work of uh, David Hockney and his joiners. I, mm. I think those are so 
fascinating of such mm-hmm. everyday, boring, interesting or non-interesting mm-hmm. subjects. And I think to myself, who cares? So when you go out and you go to take photos of jockeys or racehorses mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. people who are, uh, you know, in love with their uh, uh, inanimate um, partners or, you know, these these images of the L.A. River. Does that thought ever come into your brain? Like, who cares? Absolutely. 100%. And I have to tell myself this, too. I mean, cynicism is the biggest creativity killer. So if you start to say, who cares, which I absolutely do, you're dead in the water. You have to just say, I'm interested. I'm following my intuition. I'm following my path. Something happened for you where you had that moment where you said, I came to photograph the fair in a kind of more traditional way. I couldn't. So as a photographer, as a creative person, you have to say, what can I do? How can I transition? How can I segue to make this something that's interesting? Then you found yourself enjoying the process of it, of shooting silhouettes and, and your, the path you were on suddenly changed. And that's a very exciting thing. So you have to really fight against the who cares. You really, it's like this again, cynicism is the biggest creativity killer. The more you say who cares, nobody's going to want to see it. You're done. So you have to say, I care. And this is at least a new way for me to shoot. And maybe this is going to lead somewhere else. Or maybe in five years, I'm going to look at these pictures and there's going to be a great place for them. Or maybe because I noticed also during the pandemic, I went back and looked through my, you know, dozens of hard drives and found work that was interesting to me now that wasn't then. So I think you have to just, again, say, I care and I'm going to keep trying if you need to make money off photography, the world is a little bit different now than it was. It's um, a harder place. So if you want to make projects that are yours and you can establish a name and a reputation and you can gain a following, then you have to just put the who cares question way in the back of your mind and keep forcing yourself to move forward. Keep forcing yourself to make better pictures, make to, to um, challenge yourself the way you see things. It's kind of all you have. Mm-hmm. It really is. So I have a better gauge of who cares be- sometimes because I show work in galleries and I rely on that a lot for my income. If nobody buys, then my question of who cares is a little more relevant. Like, ah, oh, nobody cared about that. So you can, I can sort of gauge like what sold extremely well and what didn't. And in a way, Sometimes that's not accurate. It wasn't seen in the right place or the right people. But, you know, you do take those things into consideration as you move on. Yeah. But trying to keep the who cares out of your mind is really important. And just saying, I care about this and I'm just going to push myself. I'm here for this hour, two hours. I'm going to keep finding my way through. So then how do we figure out what the proof of concept is before we we show it to somebody? Is that because for me personally, If I had an idea for something, I want to go full steam ahead until it's finished. But then at that point, have I wasted my time if nobody, if it doesn't resonate with anybody? Not at all. Not at all. Do the whole project as you want to do it, as you feel, until you feel confident of the work. And then you show it, you know, and you show it to a few people to get a few different perspectives. And you have a way to talk about the work and to, you know, give the, the viewer a general sense of what you're doing. And... You, it doesn't mean your project's done. It might be a new way to frame it. It might meaning literally frame it or mm-hmm. reframe the project. 
you might want, it, it just might open up new ideas, like the project isn't done, or maybe it is. So having a few smart people to show either while you're in process or when you feel like you've got a substantial amount of work done is really important. You learn from your peers. You learn from people who, you know, when we do our workshops, the group is contributing so much to everybody's work that it's of equal importance. And that's true if you're working in your own studio, your own home, in a school, post-school. You know, you just need to find a few people that you can talk it through with and they can support you and keep your eyes open about what you're doing. Such a great interview. I highly encourage you to check out the full interview with Elena Dorfman by checking out episode 408. Now, for the last clip here, we have David Ulrich, who reminds us that our pictures are not about the picture, but they're simply a medium of communication. And he challenges us to think about what we want to communicate and how to effectively do so in an image. I want to ask you a question about one of the um, um, essays that you wrote in, in Mindful Photographer. You wrote an essay where you talk about your time um, critiquing and viewing lots of images and how oftentimes you find that photographers are taking pictures and those pictures are about the pictures and you take the opposite stance. Can, can you kind of walk me through what it was that, that you had discovered there? Yeah, I, I love that phrase they came up with. Pictures are not about pictures. <laughs> I had to read that twice and make sure that I read that correctly, but sure enough, I did. Pictures are about something. So when people are beginning in photography, and, and we all do this, I did this, I still do it to some degree, we're always concerned with making a good picture. And the, the goal of making a good picture supersedes any other goals. Whereas photography, above all, is a communication. You know, we are communicating something to others through our photographs. So pictures are about something. They're not just about the picture itself. They're not just about the rule of thirds or about, you know, what you can do in Lightroom or Photoshop. Pictures represent something in the world. Pictures say something about the world. They say something about yourself. And we need to start attending to the communicative power of the medium, not just is it a good picture. Actually, some of the most powerful pictures I've seen, by most definitions, are not good pictures. Yes. You know, they break the rules, if you will. I'm so tired of the rule of thirds. The rule of thirds is wonderful if you wish to create harmony in the picture. Mm -hmm. But is harmony your only goal? What about visual tension? So how do, how do we break past that? How, how do we break past? Because when we get started in photography, we want to learn how to use the tool, right? We think that we're learning photography, but we're just learning how to use the tool. How do we break past that so that we can start to include meaning in our images? I don't think we break past it. I think we evolve through it. We have to learn the tools. We have to learn what makes a good picture. We have to follow the rules at the beginning. There's no question. You know, I'm so happy that I learned photography in the darkroom. There's so many principles about light and exposure that I learned in the darkroom that are much harder lessons to learn digitally. But I do think that coincident with learning the tools, you also need to learn what does it mean to be authentic? Who am I? 
And how does that bleed into my photography? When I look at people's photographs, the, fir the, the first two things I look at are, number one, is the picture authentic? Does it grow directly from the heart and mind of the maker? Or is it merely an imitation of all the pictures they see in the media? We all have in our mind hundreds of thousands of pictures that we see on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Invariably, we are going to imitate some of those. But we need to find our way through that to discover who am I really? What is my own in a picture? And that grows concurrently with learning the media. Once you begin to learn something about what is my own, what is your own way of seeing, then your own way of seeing becomes more important than the rules that govern a good photograph. Again, if you want to hear the full interview with David, go ahead and check out episode 410. Now, I really hope that this episode gave you inspiration. I hope that you learned something. I hope that you felt heard and that you realize that however you feel or whatever you're going through right now in your photography, wherever you're at on that mountain that feels impossible, right? Wherever you're at in that photography journey, you're not alone. We've all been there. We've all been right where you are right now. And you don't have to go through it alone. You can join the Beginner Photography Podcast community. You can simply listen to conversations like this to get you through that. And again, you can grab your free photography action plan for this episode so that you can start to implement these best lessons of the year into your photography. And you can do that by heading over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash group to join the free and private community. So I encourage you to bookmark or, or save this episode to come back and re-listen every so often, you know, to try to give yourself a dose of photography motivation or a, a boost of energy to go out and shoot and capture images that you feel compelled to shoot that are you. Images that are uniquely you. Well, that is it for today. Until next time, remember, the more that you shoot today, the better of a photographer you will be tomorrow. Talk soon.